Gordon, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And yo, man, shout out to everybody who is joining us on their, on their first time. Uh, I know how sometimes frightening it is to walk into a church for the first time. Uh, you don't know anybody. You don't know where anything is. Um, and there's a great group of people here. And we're just so grateful that you're with us today on this Resurrection Sunday. Shout out to everybody joining us online. We are incredibly grateful that you would decide to spend your time with us here today. So before we hop into today's message, I want to pray for us. Uh, God, our good Father, uh, I, I pray that in these moments as we're looking at Scripture, Father, I pray that they would jump off of the screens and jump off the pages and into our hearts. I pray that they would be real and it would draw us closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have a, a pretty love-hate relationship with the choir, not because they won't let me sing. Um, they did sound absolutely incredible. Give it up for them one more time. The reason I have a love-hate relationship with the choir has nothing to do with the choir. It has everything to do with these big steel risers. About six or seven years ago, six years ago, uh, after our, probably our first or second Easter, man, our staff is always working really, really hard around Easter time to put together so many different celebrations and different things. And this one particular Easter, like, our staff was completely wiped. Some people left a couple days after to go see family or friends after Easter. And we had done so much work, but there was one remaining task, to return these risers to the rental company. The only one caveat was the rental company would not come in the building. We had to take them out to the sidewalk. So wanting to take one for the team, I said, you know what? I'm going to go and help take these risers out. And I told my wife, hey, I'll be back like in 20 minutes. Famous last words. <laughs> now, at the same time, as much as our staff was tired and exhausted, at home, my wife was also really, really tired and exhausted. We had a newborn son, and with all of the physical demands on my wife um, as his mom, and just a lot of other stuff going on in, in life. We had actually just found out that her father had dementia. And we were going to drive that day to go to Virginia to see her dad. But first, I had to take these risers out. So I get here, I size them up, I'm like, it's not that bad. And you know something is heavy when you go to pick it up and you look down at it again, like, all right. <laughs> Trying to, you know, go my, my 11th grade pre-calculus calculations, right, I'm going to pick this up. And I picked this joint up, one of these up, and that joint was so heavy, I was like, there's no way. You know, like, yeah, the second I picked it up, I was like, ain't no way in the world this is going to work. But still, I had to like hurry up and do this so I can get out and go to Virginia. So I mustered up the strength, I had somebody with me, and we're walking down the aisle, and I just felt like someone punched me in my stomach. I made a turn, and I threw my back out. Yes, I tried to stand up, I was like, it's in your head, J.O., get up, get up, get up. And I tried to stand up, and it just felt old. I was like, this is what old age feels like right here. This is, this is the feeling of old age. And like, I could not stand up. But we were supposed to be going to Virginia to see my father-in-law, who just, we just found out had dementia. And how am I going to call my wife and tell her, like, hey, Virginia, by the way, this ain't going to work. Whatever we had planned is not going to work the way we wanted to go. So I, I made my way home. I don't even know how I got home. And I called our teledoc. And I said, doc, I really have to go to Virginia with my wife and be some support. He said, no, no worries. And he prescribed me some muscle relaxers. Yes. Now, on the, on the bottle, on the medicine, it says, do not operate heavy machinery. 
So I thought to myself, I'm going to take these muscle relaxers because I, I can't be seated in the car for seven hours. And then um, I, by the time I got out, I wouldn't be able to move. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take a quick nap, like a quick power nap. And then by the time we hit like the middle of the Jersey Turnpike, I'm going to be awake and alert, and I'm going to take over and be the hero and save the day. By the time we hit the George Washington Bridge, I was like knocked out. And in my brain, I kept on saying, Jordan, get up. Jordan, get up. The next thing I knew, seriously, we were in Virginia. I like slept through gas, <laughs> gas station stops, rest stops, a screaming baby. And I looked over at my wife, looking, hoping not to catch eyes, like, did we? <laughs> and let's just say the look in her eyes was not the look of love. It was not that. It was a look of, bro, what, who are you? What did you just do? In a very real way, I, I just, I didn't want to even um, make eye contact with her because I, I felt like I failed her. She had all the stuff going on in her life, and the least I could do was drive to Virginia, and I couldn't even do that, and I felt like a failure. Now, in my life, there's been a number of times that I have failed people, and sometimes it's because of something you did, and sometimes it's small. Sometimes it's something that's outside of your control, like muscle relaxers and putting you to sleep. But other times, I, I failed people, and it wasn't just that I failed them. It's that I felt like a failure after that. There's sometimes where I failed myself. I said I was going to do something, and I didn't do it. And at the end of it, I didn't just fail. I felt like I was a failure. When you feel like you're a failure, you feel like something is fundamentally wrong with you, that there's something off. If you were a better person, you wouldn't have done that. Like, if you were, if you were, if you were the person you claim to be, you would never have done that. In my life, I know I'm not alone with this feeling of what failure feels like, uh, particularly when I failed God. The things that I said I was never going to do, that I did. The things that I did once that I said I was never going to do again, and I found myself doing them again. Sometimes it's not anything salacious or anything crazy. It's just that I have found in my life that I can be a wildly inconsistent person, that I operate off of a lot of adrenaline. I get really excited about something, and I think I'm going to do it, and then three months down the line, I just am no longer consistent, and not nearly as consistent as I wanted to be. I used to feel this every single year when I would um, start my Bible reading plan, start in January, read through the Bible. I would die in the desert of Deuteronomy almost every single year, <laughs> and I would be like, I don't know what month it is, but I, I would very rarely make it through and in those moments, I felt like I was a failure. Here I am, a Christian, someone who was studying in seminary and doing these things, and I couldn't even live up to what I said I was going to do, let alone the standards that God has on my life. And in those moments, I just felt like a failure. Now, tell me if this is you as well. Maybe you've let some people who are close to you down. Maybe it's a spouse, your kids, your parents, your siblings, or your friends. You said you were going to do something, you looked them in the eye, and you didn't do it. And now when you think about their name, you start to just feel uneasy in your stomach because it makes you feel like a failure. Maybe you've let yourself down. Now when you look in the mirror, you don't just feel, you don't just acknowledge your failures, but you, you feel like a failure. Maybe you came to New York City to accomplish your dream to be on Broadway or to start a business or to do some grand thing that only, New York, you can, only you can do in New York City. And you've been here for years and you've seen other people, other friends, other coworkers, other people in your field advance, but for whatever reason, casting call after casting call, you've gotten nothing but no's. At a certain point, you start to think to yourself, 
Maybe it's not, maybe there's something wrong with me fundamentally. And for all of us, I think we could all um, resonate with the feeling that we are a failure when we fall into something I like to call the comparison trap. The comparison trap is when you are feeling perfect about your day, you're feeling good about your life, and then you notice what someone else is doing, and you start to compare yourself to someone else, and then all of a sudden, almost like in the, in the blink of an eye, you're disappointed. Uh, years ago, before we started this church, I'll never forget, September 18th, 2013, we had our first small group Bible study right down the block from here. Some of the people who were at that small group Bible study are still in this room today. And we had about 15 people who showed up to my apartment, and I was like, yeah, we just had Pentecost Sunday up in there. They're joined. This is a revival happening in Harlem. There was 15 people at my apartment. This is amazing. The next night, I was going to a church planter training, and I just felt so happy about all of the people that we had joining our church plant and interested in what we were doing. That was until the person next to me started to speak. He started to talk about his church plant. He said, yeah, last night we had 80 people. And he had an Australian accent, too, so it sounded more profound. I was like, oh, okay, 80. Okay. I was like, mate, mate, slow down, slow down. Eight zero in your apartment, New and you live in New York City. So with all of the math and the calculations I was trying to do in my head, what was going on in, inside of me was like, yo, there's something wrong with me. Here I am working as hard as I can work, and we had 15 people by the grace of God in our apartment, and this dude had 80? There's something wrong with me. Now, what the comparison trap does to you is it takes your present situation and it compares it to someone else. And something that you would have been perfectly satisfied with, all of a sudden it loses all of the things that you were previously thanking God about just because you compared it to someone else. And you start to feel like, man, maybe there's something wrong with me that I don't have the relationship that they have. Maybe there's something wrong with me that I don't have the job that they have. They have this career path. They're so clear about their careers. And I just don't have that. Maybe there's something wrong with me because, man, their kids are behaved. If y'all would hear the way my kids talk to me and about me, yeah, I mean, I would be embarrassed, right? So whether you're comparing yourself in your parenting, career, relationship status, bank account, or whatever the scenario is, all of us could fall victim to this comparison trap. And when we do that, what happens is we just feel like we are a failure. So here's the good news for us today. If you have ever felt like a failure, we can relate to the person I want to talk about today in Scripture, who Jesus has a conversation with at a beach after Resurrection Sunday. His name was Peter. So before, Jesus, before Peter rather had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, he first had a devastating failure, one that would mark his life, one that was not just a blip on the radar, something that could have been catastrophic for his life and for his faith. So let me set the scene a little bit. Um, this, happened, this dialogue is happening on the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed and the night before he's about to be crucified. So the stakes are high. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, and, he, and it says, Then Jesus said to them, Tonight, he looks at his disciples and says, All of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight, before the rooster crows, you, Peter, full of self-confidence, you will deny me three times. 
Nah, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And check this out. All the disciples said the same thing. Now, I love Peter. Peter is bold. Peter is confident. Peter is like a Knicks fan. He's just confident with, <laughs> with no real basis for his confidence. He can't, like, he can't describe it, but he's just confident. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm wearing a pin right now, but it's, there's no reason for Knicks fans to ever be confident. But our brother Peter here, in all seriousness, does something that I've done a number of times. I have overpromised in my passion, in my enthusiasm, in my zeal. I have overestimated my ability to follow Jesus faithfully. So let's see what happens as we continue. So Peter is sincere. He's passionate. He thinks he's going to follow through with his promise. And later in verse 47, it says, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas one of the twelve suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. Yo, the one that I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked, Why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of him, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. Verse 56 is one of the saddest scriptures in all of the Bible. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers, Judas, and then his disciples, the ones who promised him that they would never run away from him, even when, the, even when it was going down, they all deserted him, even our boy Peter. Now, to a certain extent, I don't want to just you know, beat Peter up and make it seem like he was weak or, or whatever, because, I mean, the mob was a really serious thing. Uh, in our current day, there's not too many examples we have of large, violent, angry mobs. Uh, January 6th mob on the Capitol might be one of those, the clearest examples of what that would feel like. I remember listening to a podcast with one of the officers that was being interviewed, and as he was being interviewed, he just talked about what it felt like to just see mobs and mobs and mobs of people and even though he was armed and he was a police officer, that he just felt helpless. So when Peter and the disciples see this large mob of people with clubs and sticks, and they come and arrest Jesus, a piece of me has a little bit of empathy for Peter to realize, like, this really was his life and limb on the line. When it got real, he didn't live up to his promise. But still, um, Scripture continues. So Peter walks away from Jesus, but now Peter is following Jesus at a distance. And it says, in, starting in Matthew 26, later down in the chapter, it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl approached him and said, Yo, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and, and told those who were there, This man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of those, you really are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Here's the, the, the root of Peter's sadness. He made a promise to Jesus that he didn't keep. He set a standard for himself that he didn't hit. Now, I know that feeling, and it's a pretty terrible one. 
to truly make a promise to God and you don't keep it, to, to have a standard for your life and you don't uh, follow through with it, and it just feels like you're a failure in those moments. So in those moments, I imagine that Peter thought that this was how his story was going to end, right? It was a good run while it lasted. I rocked with Jesus for a couple of years. He's arrested, about to get crucified. No matter what happens, I failed him. So that's the end of that. But here's the weirdest part about the story. Peter runs away and he, he goes to start fishing again, going back to his former life, because in Peter's mind, it's over. And I think that in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our real failures, we can't see how the story can move forward. But here's the beauty of the situation. God can. One of the most profound things about this story is that Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail him. Like, Jesus wasn't surprised that Peter was going to do this. Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. So in essence, Peter really wasn't failing Jesus. He was, he was failing himself. Jesus knew exactly what Peter was going to do. And I think the same thing is true for us. When you think about what it is that God is calling you to do in your life, think about it. Imagine if you were to take all the limitations off of God, what might God want to do with your life? God is not limited to do whatever he wants to do in your life based on your failures because God already knows exactly what you're going to do. In Psalm 139, it says this, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts when they're far from away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. That's wild. Before you sat down today in this auditorium, before you sat down on your couch, God knew which spot you were going to be sitting in. God is not surprised by anything you do. There's nothing that you could do where God will say, yo, he's a wild boy. I didn't know he was going to do that. <laughs> before you clap back, God already knew what word was on your tongue. And think about this. God has a hope for you in your life. God has a dream for how your life will look. God has people for you to touch. God has something for you. God has something that he wants to do through you. And you are not limited by your failures because God already knows what your failures would be. So the story continues. And this first piece of good news is that God knows you. And he knew Peter in advance. He knew Peter was going to deny him. God knows all of our failures. He knows our inconsistency. He knows the words before they're in our even before they're in our own minds. So the story continues in John 20 and 21, where it says that the tomb that Jesus' body was in was empty. Jesus had been resurrected, and this is what Easter is, is all about. And before we get to the second piece of good news, we see this 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now, in a room this size, I know there's people from all stripes who have varying different uh, beliefs and different church backgrounds and different understandings of Christianity. And not everybody might be at the place where they can say that I believe that Jesus was physically resurrected. To that, I want to say two things. One, I've been to a lot of different funerals from a lot of different faith backgrounds. Some people who are atheists and some people who are agnostic and Muslim and Jewish and all different types of funerals. And almost every single funeral I've been to, there's always hope there's always this hope that is expressed that I will see my loved one or I will experience my loved one in some form or fashion in some way. 
Other faith traditions say that, oh, I, I felt a breeze today, and I just felt that it was my loved one who came and spoke to me. What is that? It's this hope that what we have now in this world is not the final, is not the final thing, that there is life beyond this life that we are in right now. So to a certain extent, Christians are not the only people who believe in resurrection. All of us want to believe in resurrection. It's hardwired into our heart that we don't want this to be the last chapter, the last time we will see our loved ones, or the final part of our lives, that we will live on in some form or fashion. The second piece that I think is really interesting when we talk about the concept of the resurrection is whether or not you should believe the people who wrote about it. So years ago, I went to law school, and, as, you know, and I practiced law for about seven years. And whenever I would do a cross-examination, the first thing you would do when you cross-examine anybody is you want to find out their motivation for why they're testifying. Before we even get to what they say, I want to know why you are sitting down in this seat saying these things that you claim to be facts. If what you are saying conveniently benefits you and harms everybody else, we have a lot of reason to doubt what you're saying. Of course you would make up a lie to benefit you. But in very rare cases, there are people who testify against their own interests that what they are saying is going to get them in trouble. Now, in those scenarios where someone is testifying against their own interests, those are the most that's the most believable testimony you, you could ever give because why would someone intentionally put themselves in trouble for a lie? The credibility of those witnesses is extremely high. Now, the New Testament authors present a group of men who went from being shook ones to being ready to die in a matter of weeks. Y'all missed the 90s rap reference. <laughs> in a matter of weeks, all because they said they saw something. They said they saw the risen Jesus. And check this out. This proclamation that they were making, that they said that eventually changed their lives and turned them from scared, cowardly men to being really ready, willing, and able to die for what they were saying is that Jesus, that we saw Jesus resurrected. I saw Jesus, and now I'm willing to die for it. Who in here would die for a lie? Every one of the disciples was beaten, tortured, um, many of them killed for their faith. Peter, the same guy who ran away, was crucified upside down. He went to his crucifixion like a G, like, yo, I'm not recanting. I saw the risen Jesus. Uh, every time I watch a movie where someone's about to get tortured, I always think, they're never going to torture me because I'm just going to start saying whatever people want to be. <laughs> what do you want to hear? That? Don't ever commit a crime with me because I'm snitching. They're not torturing <laughs> They're not torturing me. He's, the, yeah, he's on 125th. I'll give, give you his address. I got his location right here on my phone. I'm snitching. Now, the boldest version of Jordan might stand and die for the truth. There's no version of Jordan that's dying for a lie. Would you do that? Would you give your life? These men, these apostles, they had kids. They had families. Would they trade their life for a lie? This one quote by Charles Colson, I love it. He was um, involved in the Watergate scandal. He worked with Richard Nixon, the president, who was doing uh, illegal stuff in Watergate, and Richard Nixon ended up resigning because of it. Here's what Charles Colson says about the resurrection based on Watergate. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth 
for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me that the apostles, the 12 apostles, could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The people tell us that Jesus was raised from the dead were not just giving us a random fact that had nothing to do with their lives. They were saying it. They were writing the pages of scripture in their own blood, signing their own death certificate, basically, by saying that they believed and they saw Jesus was risen from the dead. So as much as I want you to walk away here with the knowledge that, man, this resurrection power really is something that is credible, more than that, I, I really want you to understand what this resurrection means for you personally. So let's keep going in the story. So after, Je after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Now, I'm going fishing is a, going fishing is a euphemism for a lot of things in our day. But for Peter, what he basically meant was, at this point in life, Peter had left Jerusalem, the scene of the crucifixion, and he had traveled 70 miles by foot, three days journey, and Peter was going back to his old life. Peter was a fisherman before this, and essentially what Peter was doing subconsciously and consciously was saying, yo, it's over. It's, this is it. It's a wrap. My story is done. This is it. This is the, the final chapter of my life with Jesus. So he went back to what he knew and was comfortable with in his life. Verse 15, it says, when they had eaten breakfast, this is uh, Jesus who has come, resurrected, and he's coming now after Peter. This is called the restoration of, of Peter. Listen to these words. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told them. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Now here's the beauty of the resurrection. Here's a hope for us today. The heart of Jesus is a God who will travel 70 miles outside of his way to build a fire to serve breakfast for a man who betrayed him and deserted him. A man who could do nothing for Jesus in return, but he wanted to bring him back from failure. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the resurrection, is not just that once upon a time, Jesus was resurrected and his story continued, but also our story, our lives, do not have to end in failure. The thing that defines you will not be your failures. The thing that defines you will be what God says about you. And what we see in this scripture is that Jesus is not content to sit around and wait for you to make your way back. That is not the God of the Bible. What we're told on this Resurrection Sunday is that Jesus is the God who will come after us. Not to lecture you. Jesus doesn't come to Peter and says, Peter, all right, I'm going to give you one more chance. We're going to put you on a little improvement plan. Next time, let's go. You're not going to lie again, are you? Next time, you're not going to deny me, are you? Jesus doesn't come after him for that. Jesus doesn't want to remind him of his behavior. 
Jesus says, Peter, son of John, do you love me? What Jesus is trying to raise to Peter's awareness is not his behavior, but what are the roots of his affections? Who does he love? When I think about me in my own life, I think that when Jesus would come to me this week after I experienced failure, Jesus is not coming to me to say, Jordan, I can't believe you did that. Jordan, I can't believe um, you messed up in this way or you didn't say this in the sermon or you said something in the first service that you forgot to say in the third service. In all of the ways that I could beat myself up, in all the ways that other people would try to beat me up, Jesus would come to me and say, Jordan, son of Gail and Roger, do you love me? Jesus' goal for us is not just behavior modification. It's our affections. It's our deep adoration for him. The hope and the beauty of the gospel is that your story doesn't have to end in your failures because we have a savior who will come after us. The crazy thing about this is when, when Peter... 50 days later, Peter will be preaching a sermon at Pentecost, the real Pentecost, and thousands of people would come to faith in Christ because of this failure sermon. See, Acts, we see a continuation of Peter's life that is made possible not because he somehow did a better job and made his way back, but because of a gracious Savior who came after him. Now, for some of you, if you've been, if you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, Uh, One of the temptations that you may face is that instead of feeling the negative emotions of failure, you just say, well, it's not really that bad. We start to move the line and move the mark around so that we don't feel bad about our failures. Lord, I know you say not to repay evil for evil, but if you would have heard the way she talked to me, you'd be cool with that. I know it says to pray for your enemies, but these people are really ignorant. I know it says to forgive, but Lord, you don't know what they did to me. I know it says to live in whatever way it is that the scripture calls us to live. We're all tempted with the the option of moving the standard and moving the mark for what God calls us to do to avoid feeling a failure. Others of us beat ourselves up in a self-loathing cycle where we kind of hate ourselves. We just talk to ourselves so negatively because we don't see our way past failure, especially when we failed ourselves. But there's a better way than pretending like our failures aren't real. There's a better way for running away and self-loathing It's coming to Jesus. It's coming to Jesus and realizing that he's a savior that will come after us. At Renaissance, we hope to be a community of people that are nurturing love for God. That when Jesus asks you the question, do you love me? The answer will be a resounding yes. The way that we cultivate love in our life for God is in three different ways. One, it's the narrative, the stories that we are believing, the things that we believe about God and the things we believe about ourselves. So what you believe about God, sometimes it's from Twitter, sometimes it's from Scripture, sometimes it's from other people, sometimes it's from our childhood and what we believe about fathers and our mothers, all these different things. It's very complicated. What you believe about God is, is shaping you. For years, I truly believed that God was like my professor, my English professor, If you don't turn in that paper at 11.59, you're going to get an F. And that God was waiting and grading me on every single performance. And for years, my entire life was lived not as a child of God, but as a student. And I saw myself on a a curve. Am I passing or failing? And am I doing well? And for those years, I was a pretty miserable person to be around. You definitely would not have wanted to be a part of my church because I graded myself every single corner. 
Scripture says in, in, in 1 John, it says, Beloved, see, oh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Today, and for the last couple of weeks, I've been very, very tired um, because my kids just keep on waking me up in the middle of the night. They take turns. I've tried everything. Anybody who's like a parenting coach, see me outside in the courtyard. I need some advice. They just, it's like they take, it's like one of them at night is like, yo, tonight you get them. I'm like, and they just dap each other up. If you were to come in my house at three in the morning, we're going to fight, right? If anybody in this room woke me up, I just wouldn't pick up my phone, seriously, for, for most people. But if anybody in this room tried to wake me up at three in the morning, I just probably wouldn't get up. Do you know who can wake up, wake me up? And who does wake me up every single night? My kids. They have an access to me that nobody else has. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. We have access to God. And in so many of our, of our lives, we don't even see, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we don't even see that God will look at us as his children, not grading us on a, on a, on a grade sheet every single day, giving us a performance, a, a, a performance score. But the God welcomes us as his children. Do you know the power in believing that you are one of God's children? Do you know how free it would make your life if you could grasp hold of how deep, how wide, how, how long is the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus? And that's a type of love that God wants to nurture inside of us. And that love will produce a major change in your life. But it doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. So number one, the narrative, what we believe about God is very important. Number two, the community we are a part of is extremely important because the people around you are forming you. The people around you are speaking to you, and they are forming your beliefs. They are forming your practices, which is why we want people to not just be passive attenders, but deeply committed people to the family of Renaissance. One scripture says that we are like bricks being built one upon another, and that your life, we are built into being one holy spiritual home. So we have our narratives, the things that we believe about God and ourselves. We have our community, the people who are shaping us. And we have our habits, the things that we are doing that, that um, we do over and over again that form our community and also form our narratives. Now, at Renaissance, we would love for you to deepen your connection with us so that we can be a, a people who are learning together, deepening our understanding of the narrative of God. Who is God? Who are we? And what should we do as a result? So listen, it's a very simple thing. If, you, if you're new to Renaissance, what I would love for you to do is fill out this connection card. And the first box here is for those who are interested in baptism. Baptism is not for people who are perfect. Baptism is, or this baptism class will be for people that are wondering, man, what does it look for me to take a step forward closer to the God who has already come close to me? There's another box in there for membership. For those of you who want to not just be passive attenders, but want to commit to being a part of a faith family. There's a big one right here that is underappreciated on service. God doesn't want you to be a consumer. A consumer always takes and never gives. And service, in one way or another, reinforces our identity as people who are uh, children of God, who is himself a servant, who came to not to be served, but to serve. And we want everybody who's a part of our family to be a part of that, whether that's here or in other things that we're involved in. And the big one also here in the bottom, to learn more about the spiritual disciplines. Uh, we're going to have a class on how to read the Bible in a couple of weeks. And uh, it's going to be a great way for us to, for, especially for some of you who the Bible might kind of feel foreign. You might pronounce Malachi, Malachi, and you don't know where to start. <laughs> this class is a great one for you to, to ground yourself. At the end of it, though, 
at the end, of, after everything is all said and done, my hope and my prayer for us this week is that when you are presented with an opportunity to move the standard or to beat yourself up, that we would see our risen Savior, Jesus, who goes after failures, and we would stop running. Now, we're going to celebrate this truth in just a minute, so if you would please rise with us as we worship. I'm going to say a quick prayer for us. God, our Father, you know when we sit and when we rise. You know our thoughts from a far way off. God, you know everything about us. And yet, Lord, you're committed to us. Help us to see that our story does not end with our failures. Our life is not defined by our failures. Our life is defined by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.